Uh, this is Spin Class here on the Nachum Single Network. Uh, we're pleased to welcome back our resident Israel expert on all things political uh, across the pond. And uh, for to take the pulse of what's going on in the new government in the post-Netanyahu era, the post-Bibi era, that we have uh, Naftali Bennett and the grand unity government of multiple... Uh, faiths and opinions. Uh, this is literally the uh, you know ten Israelis, uh, forty opinions type of government. Uh, will it last? Let's talk to Ari Harrow, our resident political expert. Thanks for joining us here once again on Spin Class. My pleasure, Michael. Good to see you. Okay, so Ari, uh, both of us were skeptical. I have to say, we spoke before yes. this would happen. Uh, we had no idea that uh, Bibi would actually be gone, taken out by his own former uh, lieutenants, many of them. I guess it takes a lot of people to uh, to kill the king. And uh, w- what do you have to make of this and uh, so much else uh, that, that's going on? He's going into opposition. Is it, is it in fact, you know, are things really, uh, are things as they seem? Let's, let's start with that. Well, things definitely are as they seem. The question, and the big question, the million dollar question is for how long, right? Is this something that's going to last a week, a month, a year, or is it gonna go the full four years? And that has deep ramifications um, for each and every one of those political figures that you were referring to, be it Bibi's lieutenants who are now in government, someone like Naftali Bennett and Gidon Saar and Avigdor Lieberman. Um, it has tremendous ramifications for Bibi himself as the head of the opposition. Um, it has ramifications to the other um, uh, potential leaders within the Likud who, for the first time in 12 years, sense the opportunity to potentially challenge Netanyahu for the Likud leadership, people like Nir Barkat and Yuli Edelstein. Um, so on the political level, uh, all of that remains to be seen. And obviously that has uh, far-reaching ramifications to the citizens of Israel and the future of the state of Israel. So I want to start with this first question. If you're really could, Nick, uh, you're part of the Likud party, you're sitting there, you're now in the opposition, okay? You're not Netanyahu. There was an opportunity here to take out, you were at one point uh, the chairman of American Friends of Likud. I mean, you ran the Likud operation. You were a political guy, okay? And you're thinking, okay, now we're in opposition. Uh, Bibi could have stepped aside. He could have. There could have been a totally different outcome here. The right could still be in power. Instead, you have this mishmash government. Uh, why would you keep Netanyahu at the head of the opposition or at the head of your party? Well, I think that that's going to be uh, the challenge that he faces within the party uh, uh, as of now. I think that there definitely is a camp within the Likud that says exactly what, what you just referred to. Um, we could have stayed in power. Uh, we could have uh, kept the right block together and reigned for the next four and a half years and potentially for you know another 12 years um, if he had just stepped aside. Then there is the camp, um, you know, the uh, let's call it the Netanyahu diehards, that really feel that um, you know, this is that there is an underlying, um, let's call it conspiracy, to knock Netanyahu out. This is all about removing him from power, and they're not going to let uh, the other side get away with it. Now, obviously, in the short term, though, that that camp has lost. Um, and the big question is, does BV? Uh, have the power within the party to hold on to the leadership. 
Um, and how successful will he and his uh, and his party be in trying to remove Naftali Bennett and, and bring down this government? Okay, so let's segue to Naftali Bennett then for a second. Here you have a guy. It's not like Gidon Saar. Gidon Saar and Victor Lieberman, they said they would not sit with BB. Right. Bennett kept his powder dry on that front, but kept saying he will not, he will be with the right, he will be with the right. His party is called Yamina. And how is it now that you have now kept the faith of your own voters in doing that? Now, I'm not prepared to call it the grand election fraud that some have mentioned, but I'm certainly uh, willing to say that there was somewhat of a misleading, now, uh, somewhat of a misleading political uh, claim that uh, Naftali Bennett went. Now, I don't blame him for becoming, for wanting to be prime minister, right? Everybody wants to be prime minister. Yeah. That's, uh, that's how politicians, they're ambitious. He saw the opportunity, he took it, I don't blame him for that. What I do, what I am curious is about is that how does he have a future amongst his own voters and his own constituency who see his, a possible betrayal? Yeah. So I think that um, uh, he took a tremendous gamble uh, politically when he went ahead with this. On the one hand, he has taken a tremendous hit uh, amongst his voters. There was a poll that was released a few days ago in Israel uh, where two-thirds of his voters opposed his um, uh, decision to join this type of government. That's a tremendous amount when the head of your party that you voted for just became prime minister. So that in in and of itself is extremely telling. What he's gambling on um, is the fact that establishing himself as prime minister, having that platform from a public perspective to appear on the evening news, to meet with you know, world leaders. He'll get an invitation to the White House. You'll see pictures of him uh, in the Oval Office shaking hands with the President of the United States. Um, you know, those are the types of things. You know, Rosh Hashanah is not too far away. Every Rosh Hashanah in Israel, every newspaper includes uh, a photograph in the newspaper of the President and the Prime Minister of Israel. So that means in a couple months from now, every single house in Israel is going to have uh, a poster like photograph of Naftali Bennett as prime minister. Um, and his belief is that with time, public opinion um, amongst his voters and amongst the right is going to change. Uh, I can tell you a very brief story um, that w when Netanyahu uh, was in the opposition, the last time he was head of the opposition, which was you know, 12 and a half years ago, um, I was sitting with him uh, in the Knesset cafeteria and we heard um, that Tippi Livni's negotiations with Shas uh, fell apart and Israel was heading to an election. Um, and uh, Netanyahu's reaction, as well as mine, was one of laughter. Um, she stood on principle, which was she was not going to give a few hundred million shekel uh, uh, additional uh, hundreds of millions of shekel to the Haredi parties. And because of that, she was forced into an election, which ultimately she ended up losing. Um, and what, what, what he found so funny was that you pay the price, you pay the money, you get into the prime minister's office, and in two weeks, nobody remembers it. And I think that that's exactly what Bennett is counting on. Very, uh, well, that's, that's a very instructive and interesting story. Um, 
I think you're presupposing also my next question was how long does this government last? I guess you're telling me it's going to last past Rosh Hashanah from that perspective. <laughs> but uh, although I'm not sure you're willing to guarantee that uh, as of yet. Um, well, I, I think that it will last for a little, you know, it definitely will last for a little while. Um, I think that the first goal that this government has is going to be uh, to you know, let's call it drive away to the point where they don't see Netanyahu in the rear, rear, rear view mirror. Um, once that is accomplished, then reality will kick in. Reality has started to kick in. There was already uh, a piece of legislation that was brought to the Knesset today that had the existing government coalition um, uh, split into two, and uh, they found themselves in a deadlock because the Likud did not step in to support the legislation from the right um, in an attempt to embarrass um, Bennett and, and, and his party. I, I think uh, incidents like that are going to happen over and over and over and over again. Uh, the idea of having a very eclectic group sit together under one roof is fantastic, right? Uh, um, but within a political reality, right, realpolitik, it is very difficult to live by that. And when real issues come up, be religion and state, be it security, be it um, economy, um, eventually people are going to have to return to their their bases. And that's when the government's going to run into trouble. Uh, the one thing that Bennett has going for him, or I, I would say this government has going for them, well, I'd say, let's, let's call it two things. Number one is the fact that um, to bring a government down, you need 61 uh, seats. So you would actually have to have a minimum of uh, I guess eight people who are currently affiliated with the go with the government shift over to the other side, which is not an easy task. Um, so it's not enough that they can't function, but you actually need people to, to switch sides. The other thing is that because well, because you're saying you say that the Arab parties would not join in the 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 I'm sorry the uh, the joint list would not join to take out the government. The joint list, even if they did, uh, would not be enough seats. You would have to have the joint list. Well, but the list. government the government itself has 60, right? They got voted it was 60, 60 to 59? Yeah, no, they have 61. They have 61, um, and that, that's without the joint list. So even even with the joint list, okay. you're at 59. So, right, um, but you say the right has the right and their allies has 53. I'm saying if you take correct. Likud, you take uh, religious Zionism, you take Shas and, and UTJ. Okay. Exactly, exactly. So the Ma math is, is still important. That math is still very important if you want to <laughs> if you want to bring down this government. The other thing is that Lapid and let's call it the left half of this government really comes into power in two years from now, right? So they have a, a tremendous interest in keeping it together and keeping their heads down, not bringing about uh, significant conflict. Uh, because they want to reach the ultimate goal of, of taking over the leadership. So those are some of the things that come into play that would prevent a government from coming, uh, come, you know, being brought down very quickly. So I want to talk about Ra'am for a second. Uh, Israel took uh, some decisive action. They bombed Gaza yesterday in response to balloon terrorism, uh, incendiary devices that were burning homes and crops. I mean, not insignificant. It sounds like a balloon. It's kind of funny that we would call a balloon going over the border as an act of terrorism, but in fact it is, and Israel took uh, strikes, and uh, Mansour Abbas didn't, you know, didn't go along with it, but it's still part of the government. I mean, 
I'm not sure. I'm, I'm having trouble explaining it to myself, that whole dynamic there. So maybe uh, you could you could try and explain from an Israeli perspective how they how they could coexist with a, a right wing prime minister like uh, Naftali Bennett. Um, you know, uh, there's always politics in politics, and Ram made uh, a significant uh, choice when they broke away from the Arab list. Um, he, you know, uh, Mansour Abbas really put himself out there. Uh, with the possibility, and most of the polls prior to elections did not have him passing the threshold, and that would have been the end of his party. Um, he wanted to break away, he wanted his independence, and the campaign that he ran on was enough of this um, uh, separation, you know, separationism. We need to uh, incorporate ourselves within Israeli society. We have to start taking care of ourselves, whether it's the violence in the Arab communities, whether it's larger investments into infrastructure and education and healthcare, et cetera. And the only way we're gonna do that is if we participate. Um, so he's going to try and keep the focus on those areas, on domestic concerns, on economic concerns as much as possible. And frankly, um, you know, Netanyahu <clears throat> was headed in this direction as well, if you recall, um, he made a, 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 a valiant effort in the last elections to try and increase his own support amongst the Arab population. Actually, the number of votes that the Likud party received from the Arab uh, population was significant this time around. Um, so there definitely was uh, the desire to try and, um, let's call it, you know, narrow the, the gaps between the Jewish and Arab parts of society. The problems arise, like you said, when issues like Gaza take place, when you know the the riots that took uh, that took place throughout Israel and Lud and um, and uh, and elsewhere in Jerusalem, etc. That is that brings the the real significant differences to the forefront. Uh, Abbas and Ram are going to try and stay away from those as much as possible. They'll pay lip service to their constituents when those issues do arise, but they're going to try and go back to domestic issues as quickly as possible. Okay, Ari, last uh, question for you on this is, Bibi received Nikki Haley in the prime minister's residence, and she referred to him as prime minister. Uh, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, potential presidential candidate for 2024. Uh, it kind of begs the question is, number one, what is Bibi still doing in the prime minister's residence? Maybe there's no rule against that. But number two is, is are Republicans taking the policy of, I understand they, and I say, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans, I'm a Republican, but you know, that they don't recognize Joe Biden as legitimate president of the United States. And they don't recognize Naftali Bennett as the legitimate pr prime minister of Israel. Uh, what's going on here? No, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. I mean, firstly, to your first question about the residents, um, there is no, um, you know, I, I would say different from uh, the transition that takes place in the White House. Um, you know, here you have a set date where the new president is sworn in and he enters the White House, and, and that's that. Because there's so much uncertainty around the system and the dates in Israel, the transition happened um, at a random time, at a random date. So the prime minister, the, the outgoing prime minister, um, is not expected to leave the residence uh, immediately. And it's something that um, historically has worked out between the incoming and the outgoing. It could be anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks. Um, so 
that's just a technical matter that will be dealt with in the next few weeks. Netanyahu will be out of the uh, official residence. Um, so not as, not uh, politics and gamesmanship. Correct. Correct. <laughs> okay. that, that, that's just part of the usual process. Um, as far as the meeting with Nikki Haley, um, I would say that, you know, twofold. Uh, number one, uh, Netanyahu is the head of the opposition today. That is an official position in Israel. It's a position that foreign dignitaries generally do meet with. Uh, as you can recall from past governments, when, when world leaders would come in and meet with Netanyahu's prime minister, they would generally meet with the head of the opposition as well. Um, so that is a, a regular type of meeting. But there's no question that Netanyahu, with uh, his close personal ties to Nikki Haley and other um, U.S. leaders, Republican leaders, um, has a special place in their hearts. Referring to him as prime minister, I think, um, is, uh, is an age-old American tradition, right? Once a president, always a president. Um, in Israel, they're not as uh, respectful of that rule, but uh, Netanyahu is not one to correct somebody for calling him prime minister. So uh, I think okay. that's the reason. We will leave that as the last word. Ari Harrow, our resident Israel political expert, thanks for giving us these keen insights on the new Israeli government. And uh, we will see. I don't know what kind of even money we're going to and how long it lasts, but uh, we will see. You're you're telling me at least Rosh Hashanah, so I'm, I'm going to go with you right now. So thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. My pleasure. Take care, Michael. And I want to welcome back to the program Jacob Kornblu, a uh, political writer, editor for The Forward. Uh, I'm sure, sorry if I butchered that title, Jacob, but a longtime observer of New York politics and uh, the Jewish politics and the Jewish angle. Jacob, welcome back to Spin Class. It's an honor to be on Spin Class. What's your, fu- what's your, what's your fabulous title, Jacob? Political reporter, that's all. Political reporter, okay. Okay, so political report for us. Who is going to, oh, not who's going to win. June 22nd, Democratic primary coming up in New York. It is the marquee race of the year, and uh, the real race, they say, happens in New York City in the Democratic primary, which is now in June. Ranked choice voting, we got it all. We've got Eric Adams, we've got Catherine Garcia, Andrew Yang, Maya Wiley, Scott Stringer, need I go on? Um, no. Ray McGuire, Sean Stop Donovan. Right um, Stop right here. Okay, there is a huge battle going on for the Jewish vote like I've never seen before in all my years in politics. So talk to us, Jacob. What's going on? What are you seeing? What, what, what's, uh, what's, and why, uh, if the Democratic Party is so progressive, are the moderates potentially going to win this race? First of all, the progressives are sort of disoriented in this campaign not necessarily because they couldn't solidify behind one candidate but sort of the two leading candidates right actually the three leading candidates uh, which are by order eric adams catherine garcia and andrew yang are sort of moderate now eric adams has a base right um andrew yang and catherine garcia Uh, sort of appeal to that moderate um, block of voters who won't appreciate sort of either experience or sort of new politics. And so if you are looking for a non-politician, if you're looking for something flashy, for something new, 
you turn to Andrew Yang. If you're looking for experienced leadership, somebody who has actually proven herself being in the de Blasio government, but not necessarily being sort of attached to the failures of that government, you're turning to Garcia. Eric Adams has sort of the grip on those who he has a relationship for, for so many years, which is obviously the Orthodox community, the Crown Heights community, um, black voters. And so what is left? What is left is the hardcore progressive base, which is not enough to bring you to City Hall because Bill de Blasio, who was sort of that progressive in 2013, only managed to eke out a win avoiding a runoff, right, against professional candidates because he sort of sucked everything out from everyone. He took from everybody sort of what they would consider the base. Right now, uh, Maya Wiley, with all due respect, she's rising in the polls with the help of AOC and the progressives who have abandoned Scott Stringer and uh, Diane Morales, but she is failing to sort of get her grip on the other uh, um, hard uh, prime voters in the Democratic Party who want to see a change of policy, who want to see sort of a different style in governance, but are not ready to uh, abandon all their principles and saying, we want a dramatic change. The politics in New York is not so bad, or uh, again, you know, the rise in, 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 in hate crimes and the rise in, in, in overall uh, shooting and, and, and crime also doesn't work for a candidate who is in favor of defunding the police. So that's or, or taking away their guns. Candidates. Yeah. Uh, well, she hasn't been clear on what she wants to do, but first she wants to do something to defund the police. She'll figure out if she she'll wins. Figure out, she'll figure out the guns yeah. afterward. Right. I right. mean, uh, and I'm referring to last week when they asked her who would, who would be in favor of what they do in London and the police not be armed, and she couldn't answer somehow. Uh, to think that it would be okay for police to go around without guns here in New York. Uh, Jacob, I want to ask you a, I guess, a very issue specific to our community. This is the yeshiva education issue. Uh, our old friends at Yafed have been at it again, trying to make, uh, you know, pretend they have a constituency. And I know I'm pretending I have an opinion on this, which I do. I. Uh, so they've decided that most to remind all the Democrats that really they should care the most. Their top issue should be not everything else, but it should be whether uh, Orthodox Jews get a proper yeshiva education. And uh, this has been an issue somehow that they think is going to resonate with most of the voters. But, you know, there's been some interesting uh, this has been the kind of the springboard, I guess, for Andrew Yang uh, to kind of leap to the top of the heap with regard to the Orthodox community, although I'm not sure whether he is or he isn't. Um, but, you know, talk to us about that and how that issue plays. Well, you have to first uh, separate Orthodox community of the Jewish community overall in New York City because you have voting blocks and then they have uh, voters who are in the Orthodox community like you, uh, Michael, although, um, you know, um, I wouldn't consider you orthodox because... Um, of course not. You, you, you don't have such a long beard as I have. But sort of uh, the yeshiva education issue is sort of an issue, right? It, it, it's an issue like, like all of the other principles that people care about. 
and that when they go in the ballot booth, they want someone uh, to care about their community. But what I would say is that, uh, as you said, Andrew Yang sort of made his first introduction in the community by saying he would not intervene. Obviously, he was sort of trying to, 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 to go both sides. But Eric Adams and Garcia, again, coming back to the three uh, leading moderate candidates, have all said that, number one, they would work with the orthodox community leaders in sort of trying to figure out if there's a way uh, to intervene when there's um, uh, yeshivas who are not complying with the secular standards and are showing sort of uh, a lack of proficiency. But I think that the voters overall are not going to say, and again, it, it, even in the Jewish community, are not going to say all the other issues are not as important as yeshiva issues. Hate, the rise in hate crime sort of elevates Eric Adams to the top because he's a former cop, because he sort of is this tough on crime guy. And so, again, you have, with the rank choice, you can actually uh, rank three or four, even five candidates. You know, if you go in that order, right, uh, the, the three leading candidates, add to that Scott Stringer, who is a, a member of the Jewish faith, but also has been in the community, even though he's sort of on the progressive side, with Ray McGuire, who has also done sort of some outreach within the community. There you have your five candidates who you can rank, who have not always stood with the community on every issue, but you feel that you have that seat on the table and you feel a little more comfortable going to the ballot booth knowing that there was done some level of outreach to the community and most of the candidates have sort of uh, pledged to work in partnership with the community to implement changes if needed. Yeah, I think the outreach to the Orthodox community has been unprecedented. I have probably because of ranked choice voting, but who knows? Um, but let's uh, switch gears for a second with regard to there's a controller race as well. Um, and uh, there are also city council races. I'm sure right. some of them that you're particularly interested in. So run down the controller race, Brad Lander uh, against Corey Johnson, uh, against David Weprin, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, and some other people as well. Um, and Brad Lander being the uber progressive, I guess, in the race, Corey Johnson being the somewhat, and David Weprin kind of being the favorite of the Jewish or the Orthodox community for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also it's very unpredictable this race because you haven't seen a clear frontrunner in this race. Brad Lander was considered a frontrunner before Corey Johnson. Um, uh, came into the race, but then also you have um, the the remaining candidates who have sort of again, like in the mayoral race, have done their outreach to community, have relationships with the community, uh, one way or another, and you can again potentially see uh, the community picking four or five candidates who they have a prior relationship with who they know they can trust on some of the issues that they care about. But there's, I, I don't see, unlike in the mayoral race where there's sort of in, uh, and again, uh, specifically in the Orthodox community where there's a race between Eric Adams and Andrew Yang, I do not see that uh, um, 
you know binary choice within the orthodox community when it comes to the control race it could also be the mayoral race sucked out all the energy of all the other races but again there are council races for instance in borough park right bradlander seat is an open seat there are multiple candidates who have sought the dsa um endorsement two of them got uh, the endorsement in a ranked choice slot um, but you also have people who have been in the community who are also vying for that spot uh, I don't see many people uh, paying attention to these council races because the mayoral race has been dominating but again that's why people should uh, get educated that's why there's early voting to give an opportunity for people to sort of go out to the polls not rush you can stand there in the line you can look at the leaflet you can take your time while crossing off um, all the candidates that you want to see in office and sort of educate yourself about how this system works but also what is best for for you in in what you're seeing there's so many open races everything right. uh, potentially is an open race but also because so of Jake, predictability, because we don't know who is going to emerge as a victor, we don't sort of have this, uh, well, we don't want to alienate this guy because this guy is the front runner. You can actually pick and choose the guy who you feel, the guy or the gal, who you feel is actually uh, the candidate you mostly uh, align yourself with. Okay, so last question for you. The race to replace uh, Chaim Deutsch. Okay, you have uh, a number of candidates. One, I'll say one thing, um, and since this is being recorded, I can say it on the record. I do hope that voters do not um, cross off Heshi Tischler's name in their five top five uh, ranked choice um, ballot. And I also hope that given that he has sort of reneged on his um, plea uh, that he does not get elected to the city council. Okay, well, that'll be the last word for that. Jacob Kornblue from a Political Reporter for The Forward covering closely. Please be sure to vote uh, June the 22nd, Republican primary. We didn't even get to. Re Democratic primary, doesn't matter what you are, but be sure, stand up, be counted, and vote. Jacob, thanks for joining us.